Well, this morning we are turning to what Leon Morris calls the single most important paragraph ever written. Romans 3, 21-26. Now, I say that because uh, I think you need to know that there are high expectations for this sermon. There are really even more so high expectations for God's Word and His work in our lives. You know, when we think about the nature of these verses, they are incredibly important and meaningful as you unpack them. Now, I don't know if you're one of those people that likes riddles, but really what's going on here in Romans 3 is Paul is, in a sense, dealing with a theological riddle. See, Paul is answering this theological riddle in our verses this morning that he has been developing since Romans 1.18. Now, when we think of the cross, which this verse is deeply embedded in the theology of the cross, we, we tend to think of it from the perspective of sinners. And we think that the cross was a display of God's love for us. And that's true. It's where we see the forgiveness of God on display. And that's true. And those kinds of things give us encouragement. But as we begin to think about these realities, so often we forget to think about what the cross meant from the perspective of God. An infinitely holy and just God who is perfect in His righteousness. Now I think that if we really want to understand what Paul's trying to accomplish in these famous verses, we really need to reorient the way that we are thinking about the nature of what Paul is trying to logically lay out for us. And it really centers on a just God who is forgiving sinners. See, it's important for us to understand justice. If we want to understand the book of Romans, we need to understand righteousness. Now, we see these topics in movies all the time. I recently watched a great movie, Just Mercy. Watched it as soon as it came out. If you have not watched it, I'm about to ruin it for you. Uh, It's about this lawyer, Brian Stevenson. He's a a young Harvard lawyer who goes to Alabama, and, and he's going there to fight the case of a man by the name of Walter McMillan. He has been placed on death row. Uh, He was innocent. Uh, We find that in this story, uh, the legal system actually has uh, been corrupt in putting him uh, in this position, and they are not willing to let him out. And so this young lawyer is fighting to free him. And if you're like me, and you watch this movie, I'm sure that your eyes got moist, because men don't cry, but at the, the place where he was released. Now, now, why did that stir emotion in you? Well, uh, there are probably a number of reasons. One is, uh, none of us like to see someone unjustly accused. And we probably could imagine ourselves in a place where uh, we were falsely accused and found ourselves on death row for something that we did not do. It is a in- terrible injustice when somebody who is innocent is found guilty. And so him being freed was justice. But it's not just, it's not only just to find the guilty innocent, it's also unjust to find the innocent guilty. And here's the problem that Paul's developed up to this point. Every single human is guilty of sin and awaits the just wrath of a perfectly just judge. Our God is perfect in His justice. There is no corruption in his verdict there is no evidence that has escaped his vision the punishment always fits the crime the innocent are never found guilty this is why the righteousness of God terrified Martin Luther he as an Augustinian monk understood the righteousness of God he understood that God was perfect in his justice and it terrified him because he had an accurate view of himself he said I am not righteous before a holy And perfectly just God. So Luther, like Paul, began his theology with a perfectly just God. And then he worked down to an unrighteous humanity that could not understand the answer to this riddle. How can such a just 
God, perfect in all of His justice and judgments, make guilty sinners innocent and still be just? How does He do that? I mean, if He were to do this, it would mean that He were no longer just and rightly applying justice to the law. See, Paul's unpacking a theology of the cross in this book to answer that very question. The cross was necessary to explain this riddle, this conundrum. And he's unpacking that as he goes. Well, Paul unpacks here this theology of the cross that explains how a just God can forgive sins while remaining just. Here's our big idea if you're taking notes. The big idea is this. It's that God's saving righteousness meets His judging righteousness at the cross. God's saving righteousness meets His judging righteousness at the cross. The first, first point is this, we find in verses 21 to the first half of verse 22. It's that, but now, God has revealed His saving righteousness. But now God has revealed His saving righteousness. We find a, a turn, a major turn in the argument that Paul has been making since 118. Look there with me again in your copy of God's Word at verse 21 and the first part of 22. I'm going to read that again. Here's what he says. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Now, the great British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, preached from these very verses, and he said that there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than these two words, but now. In fact, Jones preached a whole sermon on those two words, but now. Now, can you imagine how those two words, if you've been tracking through Romans, would have hit the ears of those Roman Christians who were hearing them and how they would have awakened hope in the ears of hopeless sinners. You'll remember that Paul announced in Romans 1.17 that the purpose of his letter was good news of God's saving righteousness and how he was going to tell of how that had arrived. But ever since then, he systematically argued that everyone, both Jew and Greek, stand presently under sin. That doesn't sound like good news. And they are held under the just wrath of God in the present as they await a future, greater coming wrath. Doesn't sound like good news. And then he says, every human being stands hopelessly condemned, left to himself or herself. And then we get here. Romans 3, 21. But now, it signals a new state of affairs. He is telling us that there has been an arrival of something new that gives fresh hope for the guilty. Who are the guilty? Everyone! Good news for everyone that is in earshot. Now imagine you've been diagnosed with leukemia like a friend of mine recently was, and the doctor tells you that there, is, there has been no cure. But now, if those words were to drop from him's lips after that, don't you think that your, your ears would listen with a kind of renewed intensity? Imagine for a second that you have prayed for a, a wife or a husband for years and you haven't found that person that you felt you should commit your life to. And someone, You're telling someone this story and then you say, but now... Don't you think someone's going to, to draw in close to hear what's coming next? You've met someone that you want to commit your life to. Well, Paul's been unpacking the judging righteousness of God. Things are really bad. They're worse than you can imagine. And then he signals a new day by saying, but now, it is a new day in redemptive history. God has done something new than what He has done in the past. Something better than what He has done before. It signals a revelation of the saving righteousness of God apart from that Mosaic law. It reveals, that reveals our sin. 
And it declares us guilty, this Mosaic law. But this saving righteousness, it's something new. Did you catch how quickly Paul clarifies in these verses that the law and the prophets bear witness to it? He immediately say it's apart from the law, but he doesn't want us to think that we're done with the law and the prophets. Instead, he says the law and the prophets are actually testifying to it. Now, this is really just shorthand for the Old Testament Scriptures. He's saying all of them pointed to what is happening in the now. Now, what is it that they, they bore witness to? Verse 22 tells us. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. See, the, the, the before now of the Old Testament has prepared us, according to Paul, for the but now of the New Testament. Now let me highlight a couple of realities here. First, the Old Testament teaches salvation by faith alone. This is not a new status of affairs. Uh, Abraham, you'll remember, in Genesis 15, 6, we are told that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And you'll remember that David, when David sinned before God egregiously with Bathsheba, he is praying to God for forgiveness. And do you know where David pointed to as a grounds for the forgiveness that he was asking for from God? Did he say, I'm the king, I'm the man, remember the giant slayer? No, he prays out to God in humility, have mercy on me, O God, according to what? Your steadfast Love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Did you catch that? Abraham and David knew acceptance with God was based on faith in God, not works in the Old Testament. The Old Testament clearly displays that great men of faith like Noah and Moses and Abraham and David were also great sinners. The Bible doesn't hide that. Why does the Bible not hide that? Because it's showing us that they are only pointers to something, someone who is greater that was to come. Now don't miss this. We need, and I say this a lot, we need the Old Testament to drive us to an end of ourselves and that knuckleheaded notion that any human is okay with God apart from God Himself rescuing them. Everyone needs God to save them. The Scriptures point to us to our desperate need for the but now of God's intervention. See, Jesus did not come for the righteous. He came for sinners. Second, the second thing that we see here in this verse 22 is something that is, I think, beautiful and glorious. I don't want you to miss it. He says, now anyone can receive the saving righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone. Who's included in anyone? If you're in anyone, raise your hand. I don't see all the hands raised. You didn't understand the question. Anyone. The substance of what Abraham and David looked for has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Now don't miss this. You and me, according to this text, I believe have an advantage even over Abraham and David and that now we have the Jesus Christ that they long to see. We're not dreaming of the Christ that is to come. We are awaiting the Christ that has come to come back. See, Jesus Christ kept the law. All of the Mosaic covenant perfectly, even as He ushered in the new covenant that those covenants of the past anticipated. Under this new covenant, we actually receive something better. We receive credit for the perfect righteousness of Christ and His life to our accounts. We went to our spiritual bank accounts. We were making a withdrawal. We found out that when we put our card in and our number in, that our balance was infinitely less than zero because of our sin. But Jesus came and He gave us His card. And we checked the balance again. And it says we have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. What a change! All of that has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. In the second century, there was a Christian apologist writing in the epistle to Diognetus, and he said this, Oh, the sweet exchange. This exchange that happens when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. 
He says, oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person, while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. I mean, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are putting your faith in the righteous one who died for the unrighteous, so that he might make them righteous. What a sweet exchange! Some of you today might be thinking, I've always wanted to come to Jesus, but I just felt like I needed to clean myself up, and the harder I clean, the worse I got. And yet today, good news, you don't need to clean yourself up to come to Jesus, you need to come to Jesus to get cleaned. Guys, that is the sweet nectar of God. Good news for sinners. And think about that. God's judging righteousness comes in wrath, and it descends, and none is righteous in and of themselves. Even their best deeds, our best works, our best efforts, apart from Christ, are filthy rags, as Isaiah says. But by faith, God sees the very righteousness of God credited to our accounts. We were miserably poor. But by faith, we are incalculably rich before God. How? Sola fide. Faith alone. We are justified by faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Faith in Him alone saves us. But how does a God who is just make the unrighteous righteous while remaining righteous? Well, Paul explains this in verses 22b to 25, the second part of 22 to 25. There we find that God justifies sinners at the cross. Now, Paul's recapping in these first couple of verses what he has just argued over the last two chapters. That both Jew and Greek, without distinction, they are both all under sin. Here's what he says. He says, all have sinned and fall short in verse 22b to 23. Here's what he says. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now this word for sin, we've seen it before. Sin is a word that means to miss the mark. It's like an image of an archer who is shooting an arrow. And when he shoots that arrow, uh, if he misses the bullseye, he has missed the target. He has fallen short of the goal of what he was aiming at. Well, notice here that he says, all have sinned. Now, this is, I think, pointing to a snapshot of a past event. It doesn't give uh, any kind of regard to the process of, of how it happened, but some past event, all have sinned, like just everyone. There's no one in this room that can say, I, I have not sinned, I'll, all have sinned. And he also says that all people presently and continuously fall short of the glory of God. Now, we could say much here, but take note that Paul frames the problem of humanity here as falling short of the glory of God. That's what sin is. It is a falling short of the glory of God. Uh, this should, I think, cause us to reorient the way that we think about the purpose of our lives. Now just think about this. Sin is not hitting the target. The target is the glory of God. That target is something that we have lost that we cannot on our own get back. And so we are sort of given this creative purpose that we cannot fulfill unless God does something. See, the chief, the chief end of man and woman, the, the reason that God made us, your purpose for being created, my purpose for being created, was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is not a cultural kind of statement that if you go out and you say this to your friends, they're going to say that is a good life philosophy. Your, your friends believe, or, or the thing that we see, I mean, I hope you have good friends who love Jesus and, and remind you of the gospel, but if you have non-Christian friends, they're living in a world that's telling them that the greatest good that you can have is self-actualization. It is finding the good sort of hidden you within you and sort of becoming a creative artist, making much of yourself. But the Bible says you have been created not for the glory of yourself, but for the glory of God. And the joy that you long for will only happen when you're pursuing 
the God that created you for Himself. And there's nothing else better that you could be created for. God uniquely created humanity to reflect His glory in this world. And the plight of humanity is this, that Adam lost that glory when he sinned. And we have all inherited a sin nature whereby we don't, as Romans 1.21 says, honor God as God. In fact, we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for all kinds of idols in Romans 1.23. Charles Cranfield, commenting here, says, even believers presently lack the glory of God, which is an eschatological gift that's coming on the last day. It is promised to those who are in Christ. The glory will be given back fully in full measure when Christ returns. But think about this. The, the less godly we become, the more unrighteous we become. The less we become like our God that we worship, the less that we live a righteous life before others. And in that, the less glorious we become and the more miserable we become. Ungodliness always proceeds and leads to unrighteousness. That's why when you're watching the news on Fox or CNN or wherever you're watching it, and you notice that it's kind of an endless feedback loop of people doing really bad things to each other, that it's really a constant testimony to the godlessness of humanity. It is reminding us that we are not right with God, we don't glorify Him as we should, and we don't treat one another in the way that God has created us to treat one another. We have a constant testimony of how we are fallen. We miss the mark when we sin in our thoughts, in our actions, in our deeds. And this really just reiterates what Paul's been arguing up to Romans 3.20, but catch this. All sin ultimately robs God of His glory. It's hard to even know what righteousness looks like for us as sinners because we've fallen so far. We forget how far we've fallen from His glory. It's kind of like when an archaeologist, have you ever seen one of these articles where they're like, oh, we found a toe bone of this ancient dinosaur that we have yet to find. And we have reconstructed the whole dinosaur around this toe bone. And this is what it looks like. It breathes fire and flies. Man, that was a really cool toe bone. <laughs> but isn't that kind of what we're constantly trying to do in, as a civilization, figuring out what righteousness looks like? We don't even know we're so far from the glory of God. We're trying to reconstruct our own glories and our own sort of righteousness, and it always looks corrupt and funky and broken. See, there is nothing that we can do to deserve God putting us right with Him. We are those who are desperately fallen. It's kind of like we have lost it and don't know how to get back. We are so far from that glory that we wouldn't even know what righteousness looked like if we were staring it in the face. And yet we have in the face of Jesus Christ. He has sent us one from the outside in who is fully and perfectly righteous. Show us what it looks like to be truly human. There's none like the God-man Jesus Christ. He is strikingly glorious amongst humans. And in verses 24 to 25, Paul uses three words to explain what Jesus accomplished at the cross. And these three words are important theological words, and I, I believe they're meant to be read in relationship with one another. So uh, just write these three words down, and we're going to talk about them. The, the three words he mentions are justification, Redemption and propitiation. Three really important biblical words. So how did our righteous God make unrighteous sinners righteous? Well, these, these words give us an understanding of the way that God went about doing this. Look at verses 24 to 25 again. Here's what he says. And they're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. We'll come back to that. Now, these might be the most beautiful gospel-saturated verses in the Bible. Notice first that we are told that He justified them by His grace as a 
gift. Now, the Greek word for justify is the same word for righteous. So to justify someone is to make them righteous. It's to righteousify them. And what we find here is that in this context, God has put these people in right relationship with God. These people who were once sinners. Now, how can God legally declare an unrighteous person righteous? Well, we're told it is sola gratia, by grace alone. Now, grace is a huge deal to Paul and his theology, and it speaks of God's unmerited favor given freely and without compulsion. God gives something without being compelled to do it from anything outside of himself. It is actually an outflow of God's goodness, not something that's like magnetically drawing us towards him. See, God did not need to put us right with him. He he wasn't needy for anything in us. He, He didn't look down and think to himself that there is something deficient in me if I just don't have you. He is perfect. He's not lacking in any way. There's nothing that we can do to deserve God putting us right with Him. I mean, notice, even our best deeds are what? Filthy rags before God. Anybody out there making big deals for dirty rags? No one is right with God apart from His grace alone. We only bring sin and a deep neediness to the table of God's grace. See, that grace comes to us, he says, as a gift. A pure gift. God's pure, unadulterated initiative. An outflow of His goodness, not ours. Now imagine just for a second that you are on trial for murdering someone. And you face the death penalty. They've got you dead to rights. Like, The kind of thing you see on Law and Order. I've watched a lot of Law and Order. And you did it. You confessed to doing it. That's a big deal. They had the murder weapon with fingerprints and DNA. They got witnesses. Caught you in the act on video. And you as the defense have just rested your case with all of that on the table. And then you show up, you're in your orange jumpsuit, you've got your hands and your feet shackled. And the judge in this setting, as you are terrified, hands you this really beautiful present. It's a bow on top and shiny paper. And he hands it to you. And you open it up, confused. And you find in there a paper, a letter from him that says, Not guilty. Perfectly righteous. With keys for your shackles. He says, here's a new name. Here's a son's jersey and tickets to the game tonight. You are free to go about your business. God has freely gifted us righteousness in Christ. We who are guilty and condemned and undeserving by a free act of God in the least likely place we expected to find it. Now here's the problem though. You might say, that that doesn't sound right. I mean, a just judge cannot go around just letting guilty people off. Like that would lead to chaos. Justice has to be served before sinners are set free. And, And that's why I think that the second word here is important to help us understand. Notice second, he says in verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, as you look at redemption, you might think, I don't know what redemption really is. I mean, maybe my mom or grandma used to redeem coupons. But I haven't really redeemed anything lately. But redemption is really speaking of paying a ransom to free a slave or a captive. It's it's like a ransom payment that liberates someone. And God redeemed Israel. You'll remember, they were enslaved to Egypt and God, he, 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 he sent Moses to go and to lead them out of slavery in Egypt. He redeemed them in the Exodus. And the Passover was a great event that, used, they used to, uh, that they celebrated and continue to celebrate where they are recognizing and remembering that final climactic miracle 
where God told Israel to cover their doorpost in the blood of the Lamb because He would strike down every firstborn in Egypt who was not covered in that blood. Those who did not cover the doorpost in the blood of the Lamb died that very night. Their firstborn did. Even the son or the child of the Pharaoh. And He released Israel. Now, now this redemption that we find in Exodus only anticipated the greater redemption that comes through the blood of Jesus, the true Lamb of God. In fact, Ephesians 1.7 speaks of, of this redemption. Uh, there Paul says, in Him, being Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Now here's the question. I think an important question because of the way that some people take this. Who gets paid? There's a redemption payment that's given, so who is it, who is it that's getting, who's getting the payday? Well, some have understood that this ransom is actually a ransom that is paid to bring atonement by paying a price to Satan to free us from the power of sin. Sinners are in bondage to sin, but God uh, came and paid him according to this view. Now, here's the deal. I think there's an aspect of that, uh, of the fact that, that God paid the price that's true, but He was not paying Satan to free us from the bondage of sin and Satan. Sinners in bondage to sin, but God did not owe any payment to Satan for us. It's not like He's arm wrestling to see who gets the best people. We're all sinners. No, the payment that we owed was to God, whom we failed to give the glory that is due His name. And Christ did not come to pay Satan. He came to crush His head. But by faith, we enter the sphere of Christ Jesus, who is the greater Moses, who leads us as the true and new Israel and the greater exodus out of bondage to sin, death, and the devil. Now the third image here supports that God Himself is the one who is satisfied. We, we see this, I believe, in verse 25. Notice third, God put forward... Jesus Christ as a propitiation by His blood. Now Tom Schreiner says that put forward here, he put forward Jesus Christ, likely alludes to the setting out of showbread and the tabernacle and later the temple referring to the public nature of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That sounds pretty cool. But propitiation here is a big, rich theological word. How can a just God live with an unrighteous people? Well, this word for propitiation, it comes from the same word in the Old Testament for mercy seat. In the Old Testament, that was the place where the priest would offer a blood sacrifice once a year on the Day of Atonement to propitiate or satisfy the wrath of God and bring God's people into right relationship with Him. You can read about that in Leviticus 16. Now, the, the Old Testament sacrificial system, it required blood sacrifices to atone for sins and make one right with God. You see how the Old Testament is important to help us understand the meaning and the purpose of the cross. The New Testament didn't drop out of nowhere. It's part of the history and the story. And in Leviticus 17.11, God tells His people, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now some like C.H. Dodd, when they've been looking at the word that's used here, they don't, they don't like propitiation. They think it's kind of a, an angry, mean, harsh word. Um, now, they've argued that there's really no anger in God against sin that moves Him to wrath that needs to be satisfied or propitiated. Instead, he says that what we find here really is a picture of expiation or the, the putting away of sins. So which is it? Is it a picture of God's wrath being satisfied, propitiated? Or do we find here a picture of our sins being put away? Expiation. Well, I believe the answer is both. 
God is satisfying His wrath for sin and He's removing our sins as far as the east is from the west. Now, context is king here. That's, that's why I say this. Paul has been arguing that everyone is under sin. That everyone is under the just wrath of God and they face a greater wrath that is coming on the last day. That's what he's been saying up to this point. So clearly, the wrath of God is important to him at this point in the argument. Clearly, God's wrath being propitiated is in view. But I believe if we understand the Old Testament context of the nature of sacrifice, we also see expiation. Uh, Leviticus 16, I, I don't know if you've read that. You should go back and read this. It's a beautiful picture of the nature of the Day of Atonement and the way the sacrifice would be offered. And Aaron would offer up a bull for him and his family, and then he would take two goats. And uh, I always think, like, man, this would be a hard day for the goats because like, uh, he would basically cast some lots, flip a coin, and one, one goat would get set free and, and one would get sacrificed. Like, that's a hard day. Um, real tense. But on this Day of Atonement, there's a double meaning that I think gives us a single vision of what Jesus is doing on the cross here. One goat was offered as a blood sacrifices for the uncleanness and rebellion of Israel and all their sins so that God can make atonement between them and God. It was putting them right with God, this blood sacrifice. But the priest would take this other goat and he would lay his hands on this goat putting Israel's sins symbolically on its head, confessing them there specifically, and then he would send the goat away, and that goat would bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. Land not inhabited. A place where people don't live. Where people can't see the sins anymore. Out of sight. Out of mind. No longer interrupting relationship between them and God. They would be free to have joyful relationship with God again. And I think these two goats prepared us for the theology of the cross. One goat displayed Christ's death and how it would absorb and satisfy God's just wrath for sinners. And the second goat displayed the result of Christ's death on the cross and that their sins would be removed and taken out of their sight so that sin would no longer hinder the relationship with God. So Jesus, our perfectly righteous King, took our place on the cross where He died as a representative or a substitute for you and for me who have believed. So when God led us off by faith, we discover that Jesus put on that orange jumpsuit and went to the cross in our place. It's there that He absorbed the just wrath of God for you and me. That's why what we call penal substitutionary atonement is so important to us. We believe it's the very heart, the blazing center of the gospel. Uh, penalty speaks of the penalty that we deserved because we sinned against God. Uh, that, that substitute speaks of the fact that Jesus died as a substitute or sacrifice in our place on the cross. And we know that through that work, He made atonement for us, bringing us back into relationship with God so that we are no longer separated from Him by our sins any longer. Jesus paid the just penalty for our guilt before God by dying as our sacrificial substitute on the cross, assuaging, absorbing, getting rid of the wrath of God that was for us once and for all. And don't miss this. Not everyone is forgiven. Now as you read this, it says all have sinned and, and, and all are forgiven, but it is not saying that all who have sinned are forgiven. It is speaking as only those who are forgiven are sinners who have been forgiven in this way. See, the all who are justified in these verses are those who believed. Because notice, at the end of that verse, it says that the gospel must be received by faith. Now here's where God is so different than the gods of the nations. See, the gods of the nations were, were really capricious. They were kind of like teenagers, like they'd wake up moody. I mean, I wake up moody sometimes. But they would wake up moody a lot. They'd be angry at people for stuff, and sometimes they would say, well, you did this, so I'm going to do that, and if you don't do this, I'm not going to be right with you, and I'm going to like, you know, destroy your people, or I'm not going to protect you from this foreign nation. And then you say, okay, you offer a sacrifice, and uh, you do this, this, and this, and we'll be right again until you mess up again. But what we find here is, is that God, the God of the Bible is not like the God of the nations. God does not come to us saying, you propitiate me. God saw that we could not satisfy His wrath and so He satisfied it for us. 
He propitiated Himself for us. That is grace. Now here's the question. You might be asking, what's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? I mean, a Christian is a sinner. A non-Christian is a sinner. A Christian is someone who's put their faith in Jesus. They're no longer defined by their sin. They're defined by who Jesus is. They have taken Jesus' side against sin rather than sin's side against Jesus. Non-Christian is someone who has not put their faith in Jesus, who has taken sin's side against God, whether knowingly or simply not giving Him the glory and honor due His name, which is rebellion worthy of the wrath of God. So I think one question that everybody needs to ask this morning is, you know, what group am I in? Am I in those who have believed in Jesus or not? And if you, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, don't leave without putting your faith in Jesus. You're not promised another day. Now you might ask another question. Why, why did God need to satisfy His just wrath for sinners who put their faith in Him through the cross? Why did God have to go to all that trouble? I mean, couldn't God just kind of sprinkle some forgiveness mojo on us? Well, we find the answer to this riddle, the riddle that Paul sought to answer in verses 25b to 26. He says this was to show that God is both just and the justifier. Now here's what, where things get interesting. Paul just announced the saving righteousness of God, but I believe that he's shifting back to the judging righteousness of God again. Why? Well, it seems like some have argued that Paul's gospel only highlighted the saving righteousness of God. And not his judging righteousness, as though they didn't care about the justice of God. So how can a perfectly just, righteous God forgive sinners by, well, it's by grace and grace alone. But how can he do that and still be just? Well, Paul's just explained that. He's explained that God's saving righteousness and judging righteousness met at the cross. That's where his justice was satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. And where his Saving righteousness was poured out in Jesus Christ at the cross. Now, why did he do this? Well, he gives us three purposes in verses 25 to 26. The main purpose is that he might be just and the justifier. But notice what he says. He says this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. So the first reason that he has done this is to reveal God's judging righteousness and passing over former sins. You might say, what does that mean? Well, you have to ask, like, God told Adam if he were to sin, on that day he would surely die. But he had babies. And they eventually died, but they had children and children, and he made promises to them, and he promised to undo the effects of, of sin through this offspring that would come, who is ultimately Jesus. And you ask, okay, well, that's great, and that's the goodness of God. But how did he just overlook all of those sins? All those sins that came before Jesus? Well, here we find the answer. It's because they were saved in the Old Testament based on trusting in God's Word that culminates and climaxes in Jesus Christ. In other words, Abraham is saved in Christ, just like you and me are. His sins are paid by the death of Jesus at the cross with ours. He also gives a second uh, purpose. He says it was to show that His righteousness presently, it's in this, making sinners righteous by faith in Christ. So that now He is shown as being just and the justifier in those who believe. Their sins are forgiven because they are paid for at the cross by Christ. And that's how He saves them. But the ultimate purpose is this third purpose He ends with, to vindicate His perfect justice publicly. Now this is where some of you might be thinking, like, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about us getting saved. I thought salvation was about God's love for me. God's forgiveness of me. And it is. But God is actually about something more than you and more than me and more than us. He is about His glory. And so, 
in His salvation, what He wants to show is the glorious nature of His justice. That it is perfect. That it's completely righteous. That there's nothing wrong with it. That it is good. That it is beautiful. Even in the, the judgment that comes down in His wrath, comes with a beauty displaying the character of God who is positioned against sin. So God in the Gospel is vindicating publicly the fact that He will make sure that justice is found and procured. He has done it Himself at the cross with His very Son. It is there that God is shown to be just in His anger and wrath towards sin and the justifier who saves. God's justice and mercy kiss at the cross. Let me close with a, a few quick applications. The first is, this is the good news! Praise God! There is no better news. Is this the news you believe? If it is, rejoice. If it's not, put your faith in Christ. Because according to my Scriptures, according to what Paul says in Romans 3, 21-26, anyone can get in on this deal. So if you feel like you're on the outside looking in, come inside, the weather's great. Doesn't mean that life is going to get instantly easier, but it's promised that you will be loved by God and you await a future forever with Him, with a new body and a new creation, free from sin and death, saved from your sin, where justice reigns perfectly. It's going to be a glorious day. Are you ready for that day? I think there's another application, though, that, that we need to be reminded of, and that's the way that we believe and the way that we think about the cross. Jesus had to come and die on the cross. I believe it had to be that way to satisfy God's just anger and wrath. Now, there are some who would say, I don't think that that's what God was doing. I think He was just, as I've said before, demonstrating His love or His forgiveness and, and those sorts of things. And He could have done it another way, but this is kind of the way that He chose to do it. But I think Doug Moo writes something that I believe has massive implications for how we understand the cross. He says this, The cross is no afterthought. It is no plan B. It has been God's intention from the beginning to reveal His saving righteousness by sending His Son as a sacrifice for us. It is the way of salvation. The only way. The only way that He could show Himself to be a just and justifier. Jesus had to come in the body and die for embodied people to free us from sin. Now there are some that you will read. It's very popular today. Authors like Greg Boyd, he is an open theist, does not believe that God can see the future. He gets as surprised as you do at scary movies. And he says that Jesus didn't need to push back on... Uh, he did not need to... Um, uh, we did not need to have Jesus push back the wrath of God for us. Now, now others have, have said other similar things that aren't quite as, uh, as different. He says others have called Christ's representative death comic child abuse. That's a little bit worse. Uh, still others have said that what is most important at the cross is that God demonstrated His great love for us. And He did demonstrate His great love for us at the cross. But I believe that all of this begins with a kind of theology that starts with man and then tries to work up to God. And not, it does not begin with the perfectly just God who must establish righteousness and the work down to man who has sinned against a righteous God. See, God can't just forgive sin without bringing about justice. Bad judges find the guilty innocent and the innocent guilty. Good judges make sure restitution is paid. That required the death of Jesus on the cross. Someone had to pay, and our God paid the price Himself. Second thing, just to be reminded in the Gospel here. There is no one so good, so wise, so attractive, so smart, so gifted, that they don't need the righteousness of Christ. I don't know what it is that you find value in for yourself. Christian, that you have started to believe in some way, you, you came in through God's saving grace, 
but you are earning your way in now that you're in through His justifying grace in your works, and you have begun to focus more on all the things that you have done for God than what God has done for you. Here's how you know you're there. You are angry and sad a lot. You find yourself falling into self-pity a lot, thinking you deserve better than what you have. And you have lost sight of the goodness and the sweetness of the promises of the Gospel. You have lost sight of your spiritual bank account in Christ. And you feel poor and miserable. Be reminded of the riches that are yours in the Gospel today. And there's good news for you who think you are so bad that you can't receive the righteousness of God. As though you don't have enough coupons to redeem them for the blood of Jesus yet. And the good news of the Gospel is, is that there is no one so bad that they are beyond being saved. And the Bible is replete. I love the fact that the Bible doesn't hide the, the insufficiencies of the people who sought the face of God and were saved, not based on their works, but based on faith. You've got Moses who doubted God and got angry. He, he murdered. You know, trying to be faithful and like, you know, still kind of messing up the whole righteousness thing. But, but you find that Moses, Moses was a sinner. Noah, Noah could barely get off the boat and plant his garden before he was getting drunk. We find Abraham, who is called out of Ur in a great act of faith. In the very next chapter, he's handing over his wife, lying to the king, saying that he's his sister to save his and her neck. And then later on in the story, he does it again. And then he tries to help God. He tries to help God by taking on another woman than Sarah through whom God promised to bring the promised child. He's trying to help God out because he's not really fully trusting that God can keep His promises when things don't look good. You find Peter, who is the guy that like really talks big, but then like on the last day when it counts, he's cowering before a little girl, not really sure the Gospel's working for him. And then you've got Paul. Paul is listing out his accolades, and one of them is, I used to kill Christians. He says, all of those good things that I was doing for God, none of them enough to bring me the righteousness that I truly needed. In fact, what we find is, is that there are so many people in the Bible, mostly the Bible is really clear that God saves sinners. Even the leaders of the spiritual community of God are sinners in need of Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. And catch this, Anyone who calls out, He comes to. So if you haven't called out to Jesus afresh today, call out to Him. If you're right now in a place in your life spiritually where you're thinking, I have a past that I really can't be used by God again, come to Christ. Trust Him afresh. Get discipled. Mature. See what God does. Let's pray. Well, this morning we come before you praising you for the Gospel that you have given us in these verses. We thank you that you have not left us just to, before your judging righteousness, but you have sent your saving righteousness in Christ at the cross. And Father, now as we prepare our hearts for communion, we pray that, Lord, our hearts would be reveling in Jesus Christ who came and died in the flesh on the cross for us, that we might be made right with you. Father, do this to the glory of your name we pray. Amen.